0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. As a songwriter, I can only... I get stuck at a certain point, stuck in the details of a particular song or particular moments. And I really appreciate when a director comes on and says, gets me to think about the bigger picture, think about the the context that everything is happening in. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway.
1: You're listening to the Producer's Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport.
0: I grew up in like the middle of nowhere and I swore I would never go back.
1: That's Don't Want to Be Here from the musical Ordinary Days, written by this week's podcast guest, Mr. Adam Guan. And by the way, that is Kate Weatherhead, belting her lungs out there, one of my favorite musical theater performers in the city. You're going to hear all about the start of Ordinary Days, as well as the start of Adam's career on this week's podcast. But before we get there, I want to say a big shout out to Terry Knickerbocker Studio, who is sponsoring this week's podcast with Adam. They offer a two-year acting conservatory. They offer workshops studio rentals, one-on-one coaching, beginner acting classes, and fantastic actor training, all based in Meisner technique, uh, but with a holistic approach to actor training, with a commitment to nurturing the total actor, mind, body, and soul. Uh, Terry is the man who Oscar winner Sam Rockwell has trusted to coach him through every single film, TV, and theater project he's worked on, every single one, over the course of his career. Sam has even been known to refer to Terry as his secret weapon. Uh, Some of the actors Terry has worked with besides Sam include Chris Messina, Boyd, Holbrook, Emmy Rossum, and a ton more. For more information on the Terry Knickerbocker Studio, visit... Yep, it's as simple as terryknickerbockerstudio.com. That's terryknickerbockerstudio.com, or just Google Terry Knickerbocker. It's gonna come up. And now, on to this week's podcast with Adam Guan.
0: Three weeks later, my sublet promptly, whoops, fell through. As I checked into a hotel, I said, it's just as well because I don't want to be here. No, I don't
1: want to be here. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. I'm very excited for today's guest because I've been a super fan of his for a long time. Uh, He's one of those composer-lyricists that all of us who produce theater nowadays know is going to have a monster hit one day. Please welcome to the podcast Mr. Adam Guan. Welcome, Adam.
0: Thank you. Thrilled to be here.
1: So Adam burst onto the scene with a show that was produced at the roundabout called Ordinary Days, That musical and all his others have been produced on six continents in more than a dozen languages. He has won just about every major musical theater (laughs) writing award there is. This is my favorite thing. He's won the Kleban, the Fred Ebb, the Frederick Lowe, the Richard Rodgers. If there's a legend in this business whose name is on an award, Adam has won it. Uh, he's been a Tony nominator for three years. I have, That's yeah. So fancy. We'll Amazing. We'll talk about that. And he has a brand new show at the Roundabout this fall called Scotland PA, which I'm very proud to say I've got a small vested interest <laughs> in. Uh, maybe this will be the one. Uh, it's a fantastic show, so go check it out, and I'll plug you more later. Uh, so Adam, did you? what came first for you, theater or music?
0: Music came first, interestingly enough. I had always been a piano player since I can remember. Um, when I was a kid, I would just go up to pianos and sound out songs that I knew, even before I knew how to play piano. And You were
1: one of those annoying kids that could play by ear, just walk up and just play Yeah, I'd go
0: you know, up to the music store in the mall and just sound out songs I heard on the radio. And uh, my neighbor, I grew up in Baltimore, and my neighbor happened to be the organist for the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. Uh, so my parents um, put me in piano lessons with our neighbor. And so I've played piano ever since I can remember. And didn't really get into theater until sort of my tween years. I I joined the drama club in middle school, because at the time I thought it was what all the cool kids were doing, Um, and didn't realize so much later how wrong I was. Um, But I loved it. Um, And it just so happened that when I was going into high school, the Baltimore public school system was launching uh, a magnet school program. And one of the schools they opened uh, was a school for the arts. Um, And so sort of on a whim, I just said, hey, I really like doing these plays in middle school. what if I went to high school and learned more about it? Um, and that's where I got bit by the theater bug.
1: And did you start performing? Like, how did you... Yeah, I
0: was primarily a performer, and in fact, went to college for performing at NYU. Um Fish. As, Yeah, Look, yeah, you know, yeah. Club was on my wall right now? Oh my gosh, now. amazing, I yes. you <laughs> were many years
1: Were you at a studio audition? I was.
0: I did both the Plaritz Horizons Theater School Studio and uh, the Cap 21 Studio, which at the time was the musical theater uh, performance program. And I I kind of started writing in college, really. Um, There was a rule at NYU that freshmen were not allowed to audition for productions because they wanted you to acclimate to the city and your studies. And I really wanted to be involved, so I started... I sort of game the system and I was like, there's no rules on music directing <laughs> productions, and so since I played piano, I kind of became the go-to music director for student productions. And that led to writing incidental music for student play productions. And then I had a teacher who was a who was one of the performance teachers but was also a composer, and he heard me play the piano one day and pulled me aside and said, "Hey, I think I think your voice is over there. You should go check that out." which is sort of a uh, disconcerting thing to hear for a 17-year-old who's like just embarked on a 4 year very expensive <laughs> education in performing. Um, he was right, and by the time I graduated, I sort of knew that writing was what I wanted to do and, and not perform. And
1: what was the first song you ever wrote
0: to you remember? I do. I was doing Summer Stock the summer after my freshman year of, of college up at the um, I was part of the lab company up at hangar theater in Ithaca and they were putting together a cabaret to do on the dark nights of the theater Um, and a friend of mine and I um, co-wrote a song for us to both perform where we did this, it was sort of a his and hers perspective on a breakup, and we did this neat trick where one of us was playing the piano while the other performed, and in the middle of the song we switched seamlessly without stopping the accompaniment. Um, And that was the first song I ever wrote.
1: And when when did you start writing more full-length shows? How did that evolve?
0: You know, I start, when I was in college, I really just wrote kind of random songs, and then it wasn't until I graduated that I that I took a stab at writing my first musical, um, and it was in the the Fringe Festival and Nymph, and that was sort of my the first thing that I full length thing that I wrote and put out into the world.
1: And uh, what was that? Just tell um,
0: it was called Lulu, and it was based on the these series of plays. Written by the same guy who wrote the play of Spring Awakening, um, but he has these other plays that are about this kind of femme fatale character um, who climbs her way up in society and leaves this wake of of dead rich husbands <laughs> behind her. I and, know uh,
1: this. Michael Arden is obsessed with this piece. Oh really? <laughs> so
0: um, yeah. So that was the first. That was the first shot I ever took. It right in a musical. So
1: let's talk about that choice or all your choices. Like, what do you look for when? When you're looking for something to write about, like what's strange most of your most of the stuff we do, frankly, in this business is all adaptation. So, what kind yeah. of story says, "Oh, this should be musicalized"?
0: You know, I think for me, it's something that has heightened emotions because that's what the where the song moments are gonna pop out for me when I read something that that I think is begging to be adapted into a musical. A strange thing for me, which I think is related to that, is that the the climax of the story is always a key for me if i if i read or watch something and sort of instinctually know oh i can write the 11 o'clock number or the climax of the story um that sort of gives me confidence that i can somehow reverse engineer the rest of the show to lead to that moment Um, uh, And I really, something I think that that music adds to a story is getting to build a really fun world. Um, So I love stories that take place in sort of some kind of special, distinctive world that I can have fun creating with the sound of the show.
1: So talk about Scotland, PA, in terms of where you get your ideas, so how did that come about?
0: Yeah, this one actually came about um, through the book writer, Michael Mitnick. Um, uh, I had a commission from the roundabout to write a musical for them, and had written... Uh, Ordinary Day is the musical that they did all on my own um, and knew for this next one I wanted to find uh, a playwright to collaborate with and Roundabout set me up on blind dates with three playwrights um, and Michael was one of them and he had just seen this movie um years ago, and it had just stuck in his brain as something that he always wanted to adapt into a musical. In fact, I think I think he saw it when he was still in high school, and when he got to grad school, um, Paula Vogel is one of his teachers, um, and she sort of brought it up in one of their classes as an adaptation, because the, the film is an adaptation of uh, Macbeth, the Shakespeare play. Um, so it came up in his grad school experience, and was, was he was reminded of it again. And then... Me to watch it and I fell in love with it too.
1: So, we've talked about what attracts you to projects to adapt. Now, you talk about you went on three blind dates. We won't talk about who those other (laughs) two that didn't didn't protect the innocent. But, what about Michael made you say, Oh, this is someone that I can write successfully with? Because this is a big investment of your time, high profile. I mean, you were basically being told by the roundabout, Listen, write something with someone, and if it's good. We'll do it eventually. Yeah. So how did you say this is the guy?
0: Um, you know, it's funny. I remember very clearly a very specific thing that Michael said in our meeting, which is, you know, we were we were sort of brainstorming ideas and talking about what what possible things we could we could musicalize, um, and he said that he his priority is always story. He was like, so many people pitch me ideas for musicals based on a theme, and feeling like you have to then build a story around the theme or around an idea. Um, And he felt, and I agree, that it's so much easier to find a really great, well-told story and then mine the theme and mine the bigger idea out of that. Because I think at the end of the day, the story is what the audience is going to respond to on a basic level. And Your job as an artist is to sort of inject that experience with something bigger if you want to. So, I really, in that moment, I sort of was like, I think we're on the same wavelength as writers. And I think Scotland PA is a great example of that. Like, it was the, it's a really great story. And I think Michael, in his book, has made it an even stronger story for the stage. Um, And part of the fun of the development process has been not only putting that sort of plot in place in a really exciting way but then getting to dive deep and, and mime the emotional life and the thematic life that's in there it's such an insightful comment and actually
1: Shakespeare is someone who did this so well yeah right <laughs> the history and the tragedies and then I think about Arthur Miller and The Crucible mm-hmm. there was obviously a theme and McCarthyism and everything that was yeah. going on and he just said I'm going to write a witch trial yeah like yeah, yeah. and that
0: plot is so incredible in the crucible yeah. it, like it, it, when that revival happens I was reminded of it all over again just like the the pretzels of the plot that the characters get into and have to fight their way out of it. it's amazing
1: yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> adultery it's like a younger woman and yeah. all this crazy <laughs> shit that's going on in that thing and then you, you you get the theme at the end like yeah Well, let's go back a little bit now and talk about Ordinary Days, which is, I think, probably the thing that really put a spotlight on you. So how did that project come about? And tell everyone a little bit about what it is. Yeah. Um, So
0: Ordinary Days is a very intimate musical. It's a four-character musical that follows these two pairs of characters. Uh, One uh, are two young people who meet for the first time and sort of form this reluctant friendship uh, and the other two two characters are in a relationship that's sort of unraveling for reasons that unfold in the plot. And uh, I really wrote it because I got uh, invited to this program called the Dramatist Guild Fellowship, which if you're a young playwright or musical theater writer is a fantastic program that I highly recommend. Basically a year-long fellowship that, that brings together playwrights and musical theater writers um, into a year-long writer's group, essentially, um, where you're bringing in material, workshopping it every week. When I did it, it was uh, run by Lynn Aarons and Stephen Flaherty, and they bring in all kinds of fancy guest people to hear your work and give you feedback. And I, it's sort of an embarrassing story. I had been so excited to get accepted into this fellowship, that I showed up on the first day and we're in the conference room at the Dramatist Guild and Stephen Flaherty says, welcome everyone, um, let's go around the room and talk about what project you're going to work on in this year-long fellowship. And I had I'd been so excited just to get in that I had not thought about what I was going to work on. I was like, I'm just going to show up and it's going to be awesome. I'm in this writer's group. Um, so people were going around the table outlining these projects that they've been thinking about for months and it got to me and in a panic I said I'm gonna start something brand new it's gonna be set in contemporary New York City (laughs) and I went home in a panic and and just started writing songs and initially I thought you know, I'll just write some songs and put together a song cycle type project, because that was sort of a, a very in vogue thing for, to do at the time. So I just started writing a bunch of songs. And like I said, I really like plot and story. So that just sort of naturally evolved into this musical that's told, it's all told through songs. So it has kind of a song cycle structure to it. But you follow these characters beginning, middle and end through the course of the evening. And, and by the end of that fellowship year, I had the first draft of it
1: and it went on to be quite renowned <laughs> i want to ask about the other projects that were pitched did any of the others go on to the success that ordinary days did are there some I, that popped or
0: there i mean they all went on to a certain degree they, they all had a certain amount of life after them certainly at least through workshops and like continued continued work um but i think there was just something right in the and the timing and to be honest the producibility of what I wrote which wasn't necessarily on my mind while I was creating it but when I suddenly had this musical that was four actors and a piano I think it became a lot easier for someplace like Roundabout Underground to say oh yeah we can do this in our small space and feel like we can do it successfully and do it justice um,
1: yeah that's one of the reasons I mean Look, I think sometimes the best things we can come up with are when we don't plan. We're just like, I'm going to do this thing. And then you just did this thing. Um, but the producibility of it, I love that you didn't think about it. Because I get a lot of writers that talk to me about shows they want to do. And they want to do you know, 50-person costume drama period <laughs> pieces, which may be great ideas, but they're just hard to get started. Yeah. If you were advising a young writer, which I'm sure you do, new writers all the time, uh, would you encourage them to take a similar path, write something small, write something that they can put up themselves? I think
0: I think so as a first step because I think what you said, put it up yourself is something that's so valuable to, to, to make something that you feel like you can show to the world and feel good about it and feel like it's fully formed without the resources of you know a Broadway budget is important because that's how you get to the next step is is putting yourself in the best light um and you probably don't have the resources to do a a lot at the your initial stages and so making something that you feel like shines even if it's just you know four actors and a piano can be valuable
1: yeah i mean is it safe to say that much of the success you've had since then, including Scotland PA at Roundabout, where Ordinary Day started, is because of Ordinary Days.
0: Oh, for sure, that was the—that I think was the gateway to everything. Um, An it,
1: off-the-cuff thought of improv at they- yeah, <laughs> the yeah panic in the middle moment of panic. The key to success. <laughs> Well, that's terrific. I, listen, I love that idea of just this doing something small to get started, I think, is important. Um, talk to me a little bit about your process for writing. Do you write at the same time every day? Do day? You, you're someone who writes mostly music and lyrics. Yeah. Both, right? Which comes first for you? When you're, Is it a Jekyll and Hyde type thing? Like, how do you, it, how do you write?
0: Um, uh, the music and lyrics usually come at the same time in some form or another, even if one or the other changes a lot during the process. It's rare that I will think of a melody without words or words without a melody. They are inextricably linked in my brain for some reason. And I wish I had a specific time of day or routine that I follow, but I really don't. i sort of just get done what needs to get done when it needs to get done kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: Do you write with... like? I'm fascinated by how composers write because I'm just not one. <laughs> do you write hook first? Do you write I mean do you come up with some what's that process musically?
0: I do feel like the hook comes first, although for me the reason behind that is more lyrical than than music because the the lyric hook of a song contains like the whole the beating heart of the thing for me. So once I f- once I figure out the lyric hook, which like I said, will have some kind of melody attached to it. That's usually my, my, my in. And a lot of it, a lot of it just comes from noodling at the piano, to be honest. It's those moments where you kind of shut your brain off and with sort of what you're saying, the, the impulse of it or the instinct. Um, just noodling around and then something hits that feels like this is it. Um, and you can like take that and develop it into a full thing.
1: When you're working with a collaborator like Michael, I once read something about Sondheim that he said, I will never write a song until the scene is done before me, and then I write the song out of the scene. How do you two work, or how do you generally work with collaborators?
0: You know, it happens in different ways, even with with one collaborator, like with Michael, some of the songs... We just talked about an idea, and it was really clear for me, and I went off and wrote the song. Others, Michael wrote a whole scene or generated pages of raw material that I could pull from to to write a song. So it really happens all kinds of ways on that particular project.
1: You're working with one of my favorite directors, Lonnie Price. Yes, he's amazing. (laughs) What do you think a modern-day director's job is on a musical?
0: That's a really good question. for me I think the a director brings sort of the that eye on the big picture in a really strong way. I feel like as a songwriter I can only I get stuck at a certain point, stuck in the details of a particular song or a particular moments and I really appreciate when a director comes on and says, "Get me to think about the bigger picture, think about the the, the context that everything is happening in because it's very easy for me to get caught up on, on small details and lose sight of the, the, the larger experience of the show. So I think that, that's sort of the, what I find really useful in a director, even before you get to kind of like a staging place, um, just that bigger eye, a bigger vision of what the, what the experience of the evening is going to be. Do you like to invite
1: directors into the dramaturgical process
0: early? Do you like... It's funny. Lonnie came on board Scotland um, much earlier than any director had come on uh, a project of mine before. Um, He got involved, I think, when Michael and I probably had half of a first act, uh, and we had both... Known him and worked with him in different capacities before, and, and we're both interested in bringing him on board. So we approached him pretty early in the process, and I loved it. Like I said, sort of having that that bigger vision guiding you through the writing process, and frankly, giving us putting our brains on what a physical production is going to be like. Um, so often, I feel like we get stuck in writing for a staged reading or writing for a workshop because those are sort of that's the prize we have to win before we get to the next level and so he really from the from our very first meeting about the show he he put in our brains the idea of what a physical production would be like how we could use set design and costume design to actually help us Tell the story. And that was so eye-opening to like have all of that in my brain as we were building the show. And I loved it. So I, I hope I get to do it again with directors like Yeah, that.
1: it's so important, I think, directors or even designers. I remember a script that I had, I had Eugene Lee, like master oh, yeah. designers, Eugene Lee read it and he looked at me after I said, What do you think? and he like shook his head. Just like shook his head. <laughs> writers these days they just don't think about how these shows are going to move or design they're just kind of writing and yeah. like Ken this thing is so cinematic it's so because yeah. he was seeing it in a different way he wasn't concerned about the dramaturgy at all he yeah. was like I, how is this going to function yeah uh, and I think having a designer and a director especially look at
0: things early is so important. Yeah, we, we had a, a funny sort of intervention moment uh, as we were gearing up to go into rehearsals for Scotland where all the designers were sort of rushing to get their bids together and the budgets and all of that. And Anna Luizos is our set designer and she is incredible um but but she requested a meeting with michael and i just to sort of sit down and show us the model and what it could do and what we were asking for in like scene transitions just to say hey guys here's what you're asking here's the model here's what we can do in this budget can you help me out a little in a couple spots um and it was it was really eye-opening like like it's stuff that that our brains don't necessarily go to first um, in the writing process. We did. We switched up right. some of the transitions to and and in a lot of cases it's better than what we had before. So yeah, it's just it's a, a part of the process that you don't often think about when you're putting words on a page. Yeah, you're thinking
1: oh, I have this big dramaturgical arc and designer right. says, listen, I need you to write a page so I can get from one transition right. to yeah. another. <laughs> <laughs> kind of really cool. So you're in the preview process now yes. for Scotland, how do you use that to make the show better? What do you do? Do you listen? Do you hide? Do you what, what, <laughs> listen to actor feedback? Like, what's, what's your process? Yeah,
0: um, I think I listen while hiding. <laughs> I, I like to be comfortably in the back row of the theater, um, which actually I think is useful because the thing that I am looking for the most. And the element that is the newest is the audience. It's the the, mis- the piece that's been missing this whole time. And so I think you're really gauging audience response and trying to make sure that what you want to land is landing with an audience. And if it's not, trying to figure out how to get it to land. So yeah, I usually sit in the back row and and you can sort of keep tabs on that the, the dark silhouette of the of the audience um, you can obviously hear when people are laughing and not laughing you can see when the audience as a whole maybe start shifting in their seats during a certain part that might be dipping in energy yeah and then we we get to rehearse with the actors during the day so we get to put in changes and and for me a big part of it too is um, is with the orchestrations, which is another brand new piece of the puzzle. And you're, th- those happen quite late in the process. Um, usually it's sort of during the rehearsal process the orchestrators are doing their job, especially because you're changing things every day during the rehearsal process. So working really closely with the orchestrators and the music director and the sound designer to make sure um, the sound of the, of the music is the way that, that we want it there are a lot of moving parts it it feels it feels like you're on fast forward for those for those weeks of previews <laughs>
1: and when the reviews come out will you read them
0: you know i don't really read the reviews at least not right away because inevitably they just get to my head good and bad and there's something this probably sounds so cheesy but there's something so special about putting up a show, and especially I think putting up a show in New York and one that means something to you, that I just want to protect that feeling that we have as the creative team, like, as, like, we made this thing, it's ours, before I let other people's thoughts and feelings creep in on the experience. (laughs)
1: So you've done a lot of shows and you've had a lot of success, obviously, you haven't had the big Broadway show yet. That's true. (laughs) Is that something that you're like, God, I want that so badly, when is that going to happen? How do you feel
0: about that? I would like to have a Broadway show. I mean, I think the idea of that is really exciting, and the, the idea of your work reaching that wide audience of a, of a Broadway audience is really exciting. I also think that I've been really lucky in that all the shows that I've uh, worked on have really meant something to me, So I, I so I... They've all been satisfying experiences, and uh, and they've all been shows work that I'm proud of. So I so I don't get depressed or anything that I haven't had a show on Brodo yet. But it is something that I aspire to. I
1: was on your website the other day, which is just adamguan.com. Yes. hmm uh, So everyone should go check it out. And there's this great quote there. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm gonna say? I don't know where you're called uh, one of the emerging masters of musical. Music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an incredible quote, but I was looking at it going like, I wonder if he still likes the word emerging <laughs> after winning all these awards, the success you've had, uh, and people even annoyingly like me in the beginning of this uh, introduction going like, oh, and we think he's going to have that day someday. Um, and yet it hasn't come yet. Um, and I'm knocking some wood that Scotland PA is that thing, and I have no doubt that you're going to have one. But how does it feel to be thought of as emerging? Do you still like that?
0: It's a, you know it's a funny word because, in some ways, in some ways, because like I said, because I still aspire to things that I haven't achieved yet, like having a show on Broadway. To me, I to me I in some ways do feel still emerging just like personally the way I think about myself and and there is kind of there are those moments where I I you know have to remind myself of the stuff that I've achieved and that it is it's kind of my mind-boggling to me in a way that I've been able to make a living you know writing musicals it's so it's bizarre and strange and I feel very lucky to be able to do it. So it's, I feel like that's the sort of, that's always the existential back and forth that that um, writers must go through. Hopefully I'm not alone in that. The like finding contentment into in what you've done but still aspiring to do more things.
1: Well that frankly is the definition I think of the best artists that there can be. You're always trying to emerge into something better and learn more and
0: yeah i love that oh i i always want to be emerging in that sense yeah, like exactly. trying something new trying to do, be bigger and better and yeah
1: yeah some of the i remember mm-hmm. Jerry Seinfeld like there's a great documentary out there for any artist called comedian oh yeah where he says he all the great masters of comedy retired their material at one point and started over huh so he threw out every joke he had and rebuilt his whole comedy routine which I think you're on broadway from like joke one playing little clubs around the country and it just felt like that's I think that constantly emerging artist yeah. trying to find something new which I, I, I love that answer uh, you were a Tony nominator I was did you, did you enjoy it or was it just like grueling you'd see every single show see them early think that the history of musical theater is on your shoulders it must be a great honor but Tell me
0: about it. I loved it. I know. I was like a kid in a candy store, frankly. Um, uh, It does get sort of stressful toward the end of the season from a a purely logistic perspective, because all the shows are opening. You have to see all the shows uh, before the deadline. Um, And you also have to see all of the original cast members. So sometimes you'll show up at the theater and one of the leads is out sick, and you have to reschedule and come back another night, and it totally messes up your calendar matrix that you've painstakingly designed to see all the shows. But no, I loved it and I you get to do it for a three year term um, and this is actually the first season um, that I've not been on it after my term and I, I miss it because I, I just loved, um, I loved seeing all those shows. I loved feeling like part of that Broadway community it was it was great I would do it again in a heartbeat
1: (laughs) well here's hoping you're not on it for a while because your (laughs) own shows are on Broadway it would be a conflict of interest Uh, so my last question which is my genie question I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and grants you one wish And you're such a nice, humble guy. What's the (laughs) one thing about Broadway and the New York theater experience that drives you absolutely crazy, that really gets you angry, frustrated, that would make you, you know, kick in the back of a theater seat (laughs) to change? So what would you ask this genie to wish away?
0: You know, I feel like I'm always looking out for the musical theater writing community. Like, there's so many young great writers who have devoted their lives and their passion to theater that are that are so great and waiting for their shot. So there's always a part of me that like gets a little bent out of shape when it feels like shows get written by writers who are not theater writers for reasons that are not because the writers are the best people to write that show because that's obviously not saying that that you know a pop songwriter can't write a great Broadway show that's been. Uh, we've seen lots of them um, but there are some times where it just feels like oh man there's something about I wish a theater writer had been attached to that project to to like really have it lift off and take off and I think the most exciting commercial projects are the ones where I feel like the producers have found like a really exciting voice to pair with a property and I feel like There are times when the writers are chosen not for their voice, but for their brand. And I just think, I'm a little biased, but I think that the writer's voice is the thing that makes theater and musical
1: theater so special. That's the first time anyone's ever mentioned that as a genius, and I love that. Because, like, Sarah Bareilles and Waitress just feels so the right person, regardless of how many millions of albums she'd sold before. But there are certainly some that you can just smell or chosen. (laughs) For their top 40 hits uh, it's a great wish thank you so much for joining us of we course wish you the best uh, with scotland pa go check out adamguan.com. go check out scotland pa at the roundabout thanks for joining us and we will see you next time once again i want to thank adam for sitting down and taking time out of his preview period of scotland pa to spend this podcast with us go see scotland pa if you haven't already it's fantastic you're gonna love it Other things you should do, November 16th and 17th of this year, guess what? It's coming up, the Super Conference. That's our Producers Perspective Super Conference featuring keynote speeches by Joe Iconis and Pulitzer Prize finalist Heidi Schreck. If you are excited for this new podcast season, this whole new format, please do us a favor and review us on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other theater makers and theater fans find us. Uh, and promote theater all over the world if you want to keep up with Adam and his journey with Scotland PA follow him on Instagram at GW Unster that's right Gwanster GW Unster I don't know why I described it that way it's at Gwanster and don't forget to follow me on Instagram as well at Ken Davenport B-Way At Ken Davenport, B-Way. And now, what is becoming one of the most exciting parts of the podcast each week, uh, it's time to introduce this week's hashtag, Songwriter of the Week. Today, we'll be hearing a lovely tune, I Want to Choose from the Musical Teeth, book and music by Anna K. Jacobs book and lyric by Michael R. Jackson. I love the song, and I love that they both use middle initials in their name. I just think it's fancy and legit. So, uh, if you like what you hear, you can find more of this over on Anna's website, AnnaKJacobs.com AnnaKJacobs.com You're going to love this tune. Listen to it. Enjoy it, and spread it with all your musical theater-loving friends. Here is I Want to Choose. I want to choose what's played Step into the power of your choosing.